there's a ringing of the doorbell, the girls are shocked to find two detectives on the other side of the door. They aren't there to arrest Blanche for whatever it was Frida Claxton sent in complaints about. No, they have shocking news. Their neighbors are thieves and they need to use the house for a stakeout. Besides the tension between the McDowells and the gals, the tension between Dorothy and Detective Al could be cut with a knife. Will the stakeout lead to an arrest? Will Al and Dorothy get together? Will this George Clooney kid ever get an acting career? All of that and more in today's episode, To Catch a Neighbor. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing. And laugh just doing a thing No matter the misters That come and go I hope you know You'll always be my sisters Playing on the title of the 1952 novel and 1955 Hitchcock film, To Catch a Thief, which starred Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, today's episode gets a bit more specific as to whom the thief or thieves are. That's right, the neighbors. The scandalous romance that shocked even the blasé international set between this restless, thrill-hunting American heiress and the notorious man of mystery the French underworld called the cat. For the game they played was not played for money. And the characters they played with played for keeps. As a waning moon looks over Miami, we find a packed living room once inside the house. Besides our girls, there are two guests on the couch. For the special occasion, we have Sophia in a light periwinkle floral dress with a matching periwinkle cardigan. Blanche in a suit of light tan and light pink. Rose is taking notes from her mother's playbook with a light blue dress and a lace wrap on the collar and matching pleated skirt. And then there's Dorothy in our favorite baseball umpire uniform of a long sweater with an elastic hem sporting cream sleeves with a light denim and white pinstripe torso with matching skirt. We soon learn the guests were the new neighbors, Rod and Martha McDowell. I would love to tell you more about Rod, but the actor was actually uncredited. Same for the doctor in the final scene. If you know who played either of these guys, gmail us. Besides her multiple theater credits, Barbara Tarbuck, a.k.a. Martha McDowell, had just over 100 credits in her career. Some of those credits include Dexter, The Waltons, Quincy M.E., Newhart, MASH, St. Elsewhere, Short Circuit, Falcon Crest, Moonlighting, Curly Sue, Silk Stockings, La Doctors, I'm sorry, L.A. Doctors, oh, and La La. She also played a nun, possibly collecting lingerie, on American Horror Story, Asylum. He is not who made you who you are, Jude. You came to me a tortured woman, ravaged by alcohol and guilt, but you had a compass. That was your gift. And God gave you that gift for a purpose. And now he's put obstacles in your path. And like all this debris after the storm, it's up to you to make clear that path again. The new neighbors understood the fashion assignment for the neighborhood. Rod in blue slacks, a light orange and blue plaid shirt with a navy jacket, Martha in a mustard blouse atop a floral skirt and a pair of those white, saggy flesh boots only a Dorothy could love. Sophia has made it clear to the guests that they've overstayed their welcome and should be getting home. 
Once they leave, Sophia is still in shock that the couple was there for so long. Who needs two hours to eat salad and pasta? In half that time, her Sal could have had dinner, made love, given himself a pedicure, and read a newspaper. I highly doubt, at any rate, any of those things were done well, or to completion, especially since they were all done at a kitchen table. And he had linguine hanging out of his mouth. Oh, you know how Sal was with that linguine. (laughs) (laughs) Dorothy's not sure if she should be more disgusted at the story or her mother's rude behavior, so Blanche interrupts. She doesn't care what Sophia thinks. She enjoyed the company and thought the new neighbors were just delightful. Dorothy and Rose totally agree. Getting away from Sophia's negativity, the girls all take dishes into the kitchen. This gives us an opportunity to see all of their fashions from behind. Wow, Rose's dress has more squared-off lace, very 80s, and Dorothy's, well, it has buttons down the back, making it look like her poofy outfit is actually on backwards. Cute. All of this welcoming reminds Rose of the St. Olaf Welkenwagen, of which she used to run. Well, it wasn't so much a wagon as it was a tractor and 40 townsfolk would hop onto it and drive to the newly arrived neighbor's farm, giving them fish and potato juice, which, as silly as it sounds, is actually good for you to drink. It can help with tummy issues and provide vitamins for your hair and skin. All of that happened as Rose's cousin Doc would perform Getting to Know You from the musical The King and I, not on any instrument, of course, but through the hole he had in his windpipe. No, Dorothy, I don't think Rose ever added to the music by playing through the hole in her head. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Finding Sophia in the living room, the ladies are gathering up more dishes when the doorbell rings. Sophia obliges, with attitude of course, to Blanche's request for her to answer it. When she does, she's greeted by two men on the other side. Well, not so much greeted by, but told, you shouldn't open a door if you don't know who's on the other side. With as much lack of concern for manners as she had with the neighbors, Sophia gladly slams the door in their face. Waiting a moment, she asks who it is. That's when we learn that they're detectives with the Miami... PD. Not Vice. Sorry, Rose and Coco. Annoyed at her mother's behavior, Dorothy gets the door and makes some of her classic excuses. Although, this one gives us a little bit of an oh boy, as the issue this time is that Sophia has just learned her hairdresser also does Whoopi Goldberg's hair. Hence the cringy responses from the audience. The oh boy coming from the fact that in 1987, Whoopi was one of the only huge movie stars who was also a woman of color. Her natural hair, wigs, and stylings were fodder for jokes and offensive conversations, usually had by movie executives, right in front of her. My favorite fun fact about Whoopi, her actual name is Karen with a C and a Y, but she got the nickname Whoopi when she was younger because she farted so much, and nothing has changed. You know, you, uh, oh, I was going to say, oh. yeah, <laughs> Talking about the safety of the nation. Once in the house, we get to meet the two handsome strangers. First, Detective Al Mullins, played by Joseph Campanella, who had a whopping 202 credits to his filmography. 
It's no wonder Sophia was on board with Dorothy dating Al. Joseph was born to Sicilian immigrant parents in New York. Before his acting career start in 1952, Joseph was one of the youngest commanders in the Navy during World War II. He had a predominantly drama-based career with runs on The Doctors and The Nurses, The Fugitive, where he also played a cop, Mannix, Gunsmoke, Ironside, One Day at a Time, Quincy M.E., Knott's Landing, The Practice, The Bold and the Beautiful, Days of Our Lives, where he played Harper Devereaux, no relation, and the totally bonkers Harry Hamlin-led Save Me. He also did some voiceover work, like for the Disney Channel show Discover. Here, he discusses something Rose heard about as to why sisters betray sisters or a double helix something or other. The ladder of life's building blocks strung along the double spiral of our DNA, deep inside ourselves. The very essence of what we are is written in our genes. Any comment on Save Me starring Harry Hamlin? <laughs> I, I remember the poster for it, which has them him and his lover laying in a weird position. The weirdest. And I remember the lead actors, actresses, w big fake boobs. <laughs> now on to the biggest star to have come from the show, Mr. George Clooney. This wasn't his first role. In fact, he'd been acting for about a decade before working with the girls and had already done a 17-episode stint on Facts of Life. It's been reported George was a hungry young actor and needed to hit a certain number of gigs to be able to keep his health insurance. So when the chance to work with the girls came up, he had two reasons to do so, insurance and an opportunity. When asked about his time on the show, he told blogger Nine Honey during a red carpet interview, quote, I mean, when you're a young actor, you just want a job. I got a call that they said, do you want to do the Golden Girls? And I was like, are you kidding? I got to work with B. Arthur and Betty White that was the time of my life. It was so much fun. Besides the Ocean movies and his directing and writing credits, we can't forget the real star of his resume, the recently talked about and discovered Magic Bubble. That, of course, is the DVD title. The IMDb listing is Unbecoming Age. Along with George, we had Esther Larner, Tony's other woman from A Long Day's Journey into Marinera, making an appearance. And now for some fun facts. George, in this episode, was only 26 years old. He's now 61. Joseph was 63 when portraying Al. Coco, you're a movie freak. You got some George Clooney fun facts? <laughs> you got some IMDb history? Yeah, I don't know if I have fun facts. Um, I would say if someone wants to delve into George Clooney's filmography, and I don't know if it was the first, I think it was like his, his first lead. Anyways, People should watch From Dusk Till Dawn. Absolutely. It's one of the best. It's still one of my favorite movies. Ultimate 90s hair on him. Oh, yeah. He's got the, the full little Caesar cut. He, yeah. He pulled, <laughs> brought it over from ER. <laughs> I think it was it was in between filming, so he, he, he just oh. had it. Um, but I love it. It's, uh, well, it's it's him fighting vampires. Spoilers. Yeah. With Let's Juliette Lewis love. and Quentin Tarantino and Harvey Keitel. It's insane. <laughs> and it's great. It's a rowdy place. It's on the middle of nowhere. There'll be no cops. And it's open from dusk till dawn. Hey, didn't you say you want to meet in the morning? Here we are. Well, since you just picked this place out of a hat, my brother is dead. That girl's entire f***ing family is dead. What, were they psychos? Or... They look like psychos? Is that what they look like? They were vampires. Psychos do not explode when sunlight hits them. I don't give a f how crazy they are. Also, out of sight. I don't know if you've ever oh, seen that. Oh, yeah. I've not seen that, but I do hear good things about it. Yeah, it's a great, 
great movie. Steven Soderbergh. I think it's the first thing he and George Clooney worked on together. It's like a a comedy caper sort of. Oh, okay. But kind of done in the well, not kind of. It's done in that in Steven Soderbergh's style, mm. where he's you know mixing time very with a lot of visuals. Yeah. And music and anyways, you know what I mean. I do. Right, now take one of those big envelopes and put as many hundreds, fifties, and twenties as you can pack into it. Nothing with bank straps or rubber bands. I don't want any dive packs. I don't want any bait money. Start with the second drawer and then the one over there underneath the money counter. And I think that'll do it, Loretta. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. You've got Jennifer Lopez in, like, I think the best thing she's done. <gasps> but you haven't seen Selena, so. I know that I saw the making of on HBO back in the day. Mm. So I feel like I've, mm. I am, Selena is inside of me. <laughs> also, Three Kings and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Classics. So great. Suburbicon. We didn't talk about Suburbicon. Suburbicon. He, he directed Suburbicon. That's right. Okay, so fun story. My mother, for about six months, every time she saw Coco and I, was like, have you guys watched Suburbicon yet? Sit down right now. We're going to put on. No, Mom, we're grabbing dinner and leaving. We're not going to watch Suburbicon. We finally, one night, were like, let's just watch it. It was so good. We loved it. It has like 4% or something insanely low on Rotten Tomatoes. But it really, it was like, uh, it felt like a Coen Brothers film. Well, it was. They wrote it. I know. That's what I, but even with him directing. Oh. I did, <laughs> yeah. It was a great movie. Well, now let's get to the real meat of it all. We watched The Magic Bubble last night. The Magic Bubble. We watched the whole thing. We, we didn't. We almost gave up about halfway. <laughs> Can I join you? The market? Right. I thought you worked there. No, no, I just wanted to push your cart. Why? Oh, because I thought that you were adorable and cute, and I wanted to know you. <laughs> really? Yeah. So was Charles upset about the beer? Not the beer so much as that. I don't know how old I am. Can we finish this tomorrow? <laughs> I then... said, we don't even have to finish it. Let's just see George Clooney. We don't even have to watch it. <laughs> we don't have to watch it, but we did. We sat through the whole darn thing. I don't think we paused it more than once no. for like a minute. I don't remember seeing Esther Larner, the actress that led to me finding this amazing film. I don't remember seeing her. She might have been at a birthday, but boy, this was a bonkers film. We Every 15 seconds, we're saying, boom, Mike, boom, Mike. Because it was just falling into frame. Uh, the story was chaotic. Childish. Stupid. I feel like the premise was very sweet or or heartwarming to say, if you don't know how old you are, how would you behave? Would you, you know, do you dress a certain way and do your hair a certain way and have a, a life a certain way because of society and you're 40, so you have to do X, Y, Z? But boy, they just didn't ex execute that idea at all. It just has a weird feeling the whole time. Like crazy people are making it. Yeah. And is her name Diane Salinger? Yes. Diane Salinger gives a really committed performance. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I think it was probably nice for her to have a lead role where mm -hmm. she could do what she wanted. For those that don't know Diane, she was Simone the waitress in Pee-wee's Big Adventure who goes into the dinosaur with him. 
Simone, this is your dream. You have to follow it. I know you're right, but... But what? Everyone I know has a big butt. Come on, Simone, let's talk about your big butt. But yeah, she was the lead, and, and she really was great. Yeah, very charming. Somehow she made that movie watchable, which is yeah. very bad. And so George Clooney shows up. He's got long hair. He doesn't have the Caesar. He's got the early 90s Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah, where he keeps he keeps putting it over his ear. Yeah. He mumbles every line he has. <laughs> his, he head, has his head's bobbling. I don't think he has any dialogue, like written dialogue, and he's only mumbling, muttering, and bobbing his head like, well, a bobblehead. <laughs> and there's truly no telling what his relationship is with uh, Diane because it's like, wait, are they hooking up now? Are they having an affair? Wait, do they know each other besides bumping into each other in the street sometimes? <laughs> like what what is their deal? It feels like it feels like we got the cutting room floor version of that movie because nothing made sense. The end of the movie, it seems like they've had a really deep relationship and possibly a sexual one. Yeah. But you just don't ever know. <laughs> And it's not a PG movie by any stretch. No. There's, there's nudity. She gets she there's she's naked. You see her naked body in that movie for no reason. No. So many times the nudity was just like, wait, what? Shocking. <laughs> I, I mean, I I liked it. There's a point where she's wearing she's wearing one of those. I'm sh- I'm certain it was a unitard because I had those as a child in the '90s, where it was kind of the it was off the shoulder, and you know, you still had your sleeves and stuff, but so it's off the shoulder, very tight. And the whole time that she was wearing that top, we both were just like, we're just so nervous she's going to pull her boobs out. Like, she's at a child's baseball game. She might just pull her boobs out right now. And then there was <laughs> That's sort the of, vibe. <laughs> and then there was a scene within that where that was kind of teased that that was going to happen. Yes. So we were like, here we go. <laughs> we were right. She's bribing the, the kid's little league coach. With During tickets, a game. With, yeah, but by putting tickets to something in, in her cleavage. Was it yeah. Dodgers tickets? Yes. Man. <laughs> anyway, so that is the magic bubble. We're trying to make it happen. We want people to know of this totally wackadoo film. It's nearly unwatchable, but it's one of the, it's like one of those steak challenges. It's not good for you, but maybe you should see if you can do it. <laughs> Without hesitation, Blanche introduces herself. Full name, full description. My friends here are innocent. I am not. I remember watching this episode when I was younger and being confused as to why no one was acknowledging George Clooney. Because when I was younger, he was huge with ER and the Batman movies. And now that I'm older and a more refined woman, I totally see the appeal of the lack of appeal towards the otherwise appealing 20-something-year-old kid. No thank you. No time for potty training. As the new kid, Bobby, looking mighty dapper in his navy suit, is taking notes, even when they are just pickup lines. Managing the room of hormones and his protege, Al takes control of it, in his brown suit that's just kind of existing, but I'm not mad about it. Getting to the reason for their being there, Detective Al has some questions. Before he can ask them, Blanche has the answers to all of them. She's single, available Saturday, and can arch her back until her feet touch her head. Impressed with the info, or perhaps saving it for later, 
Bobby chooses to write that last bit in his notebook. Settling in, Al gets specific. The McDowells. They aren't who the ladies believe them to be, leaving Rose concerned as to who they actually had over for dinner. It's not that who was there wasn't the McDowells, they thought. It's that the McDowells are actually stolen gem dealers. Everyone is shocked at the news. They had been so kind. How could they be such dangerous liars? Intelligence gathered regarding the McDowells has the detectives believing there will be a large exchange of some sort in the next few days. To access the house for undetectable surveillance, they would need to stay with the girls. That's fine by Blanche. They can both stay with her in her room. As Dorothy starts to get upset at the idea of cops living in the house, not Blanche hogging them, Blanche is kind enough to throw her the scrap. Fine, you have the boy. Dorothy can't understand why they can't just be like real cops, you know, like the ones on TV, and go sit outside in a white van. Al makes it clear. You can tell us to buzz off. You aren't obligated to help, but we'd appreciate it. Pretty pleased with sugar on top. As someone who was a private eye for one night, I can tell you it's not as easy as it looks. What What did you say, detective? Hello, Coco. Hi. <laughs> What, what brought this about? When I was living in Vegas, my best friend was also down in Vegas, and we both worked for the same boss. I will refrain from any adjective use there. So being that it was a very rich neighborhood in Vegas, you had a lot of very bored housewives, a lot of MLM going on, and this woman was certain her husband was cheating on her. And she came over one day, and even though she's like, I looked at his phone, and I looked at this, and da-da-da-da-da, she was, you know, panicking. And... Our boss just kind of turned to, to my friend and I and was just like, oh, they'll do it. And we're like, yeah, actually, we will. <laughs> and she's like, OK, I'll pay you guys five hundred dollars. And we're like, OK, because we're like 22. We're like, that's cool. And we left work and sat in a little alley behind his work for hours because he was working late and he was actually working late. So we're listening to the radio and we're laughing and then we're like, we're tired. We're hungry. This is awful. And it went on for several hours. And finally he left. We're like, oh, my God, it's happening. Here we go. And about a quarter mile later, when the lights changed, we totally lost him. <laughs> so we had to we had to call our contact and explain what happened and she's like it's okay he's home now and we're like well he was just at work and she's like thank you so much and we're like okay <laughs> and we got 500 bucks that sounds like a pretty healthy working relationship <laughs> to me that was that was the working relationship that cost me a lot of therapy hours <laughs> but that was fun i did always want to be a private eye for a day and so i did get to check it off my bucket list and it was incredibly boring, and nothing happened. So don't do it, is what I'm saying. I hope I have to one day, and I think 
that when I have a stakeout, it's going to be fun. When Dorothy responds with a firm no, Blanche excuses all four of them to the kitchen to discuss. Sure, it's because she's horny and looking for some low-hanging fruit, but Blanche is disguising her desires for Al as desires to be a good citizen and do the right thing. Dorothy isn't comfortable with the two gruff, badge-having, uniform-wearing, gun-toting policemen just living there, but Blanche assures her they can just strip all of that away and have two naked policemen, her goal all along. Rose chimes in, and her vote goes with Blanche, though not for the same reasons. As someone who had a father who was a weekday farmer and weekend police officer, she knows they should do whatever they can to help, just like her dad, who never had real police work to do, so he usually just took funny pictures around the jail. With Sophia's vote of no, there's a tie. Dorothy can't justify their involvement. Sure, they'd be helping, but it could be dangerous. For the two yes votes, they agree that one, not only is there nothing dangerous about it, but if something did happen, the police are literally right there to help. And with that, Dorothy is in agreement, and the detectives are informed of the official invite. The detectives are appreciative and make a plan. We'll be back in the morning. We won't disrupt anything at all about your lives. We'll just need one of you to move out of your room so we can have a room. One with a bathroom, please. We'll also put all of our equipment in the kitchen, make it a base for ourselves. Not like anyone needs it to cook or anything. Pointing out how inconvenient the idea already is, and perhaps reminding the girls she was the lone holdout of a no vote, Sophia jests in delight. Perfect! We'll just pee in the broom closet and cook over the fireplace. Her crass comments met with a line of headshakes of disappointment from the girls. It's a new dawn, a new day, and Sophia is feeling good, hanging out with Detective Al in the kitchen. As his high-tech surveillance gear beep-boops with nonsense lights and knobs, she's apparently had enough room in the kitchen to cook as she asks him how he enjoyed the pasta lunch she made him. Nearly shrugging it off, he gives it a, I'm not big into Italian food, before putting his headphones back on. Somehow not losing her cool, Sophia simply says, good thing you carry a gun. When Al takes off his headphones, as he missed what she said, she repeats, Ah, oh, the last three days have been fun. He smiles and nods before getting back to work. When Blanche comes in from the back door, she greets them both, asking Al if he's heard anything on the wiretap. Don't bother asking, Sophia fills her in. When he has those headphones on, he can't hear anything they're saying. She's been taking advantage of his temporary hearing blockage by messing with him. Showing Blanche what she means, Sophia then calls him a dumb bajigal loop before telling him he has the face of a jackass's ass. As Sophia giggles in her own delight, Blanche is appalled. She even takes a break from her plant misting to tell Sophia she should be more kind to the guy that's basically her daughter's boyfriend. With a scoff, Sophia dismisses her comment. How can they be basically a couple when they act like they hate each other? Which is exactly Blanche's point. They clearly have a passion betwixt them, a passion that can turn into a spark, which leads to a flame of desire rising within, causing a wildfire of lust, ecstasy, and passion. Thank God she was misting. She got herself so worked up she had to spray herself to cool down. Back to a normal temperature, Blanche tries to go back to her conversation with Sophia, but that point has been lost. No matter, Dorothy has arrived anyway and is ready to give an example of that unbridled passion. She does so by starting out with name-calling, referring to the titular detective from the Dick Tracy comics that started in 1931. 
Not missing a beat on the sassy train, Al rips off his headphones and barks back at her. Even though the agreement was that the kitchen would be the home base for the operation, Dorothy is annoyed at all the equipment being in the way. Wearing a straight-out-of-my-grandmare's-closet t-shirt and blocked teal and blue windbreaker-looking corduroy jacket with matching blue pants, Dorothy is fed up with the disruption. On top of the equipment, she would also appreciate it if he would put the toilet seat down after using it. Ironically, it was actually Sophia who had been experimenting with new toilet configurations and had left the seat up. She'll try to be better about it. Coco, have you ever done toilet experiments? I think I've sat backwards. I've sat reverse cowgirl on a toilet to pee before. I did that once too. Yeah. I I don't I was probably like eight or ten or something and I was like, what would happen? I read it in a book, I think. Someone said that, like, as a joke that they do that to, like, read or something on the back of the tank. You know, yeah. you can, like, put your elbows up. And so I just tried it, and it was weird. Yeah. And I never did it again. Still moist, Blanche, in a purple sweater and floral skirt, just aching for a dance floor so it can be twirled all over the place, reminds Dorothy the man is working. It already sucks to be stuck listening to nothing all day. Take it easy on him. That's when Al shocks everyone by complimenting their hosting. That, as far as stakeouts go, this one's pretty good. Well, Blanche is just shocked. How could he respond while wearing the soundproof headphones? Well, this guy is actually a sweetheart, and he just plays that he can't hear so Sophia can enjoy her name-calling. Coming to the defense of her mother, Dorothy points out that she's actually very sweet. She just doesn't really know how to show it, leaving Al wondering if that's something that runs in the family. With Rose's arrival in white slacks and a yellow-collared sweatshirt, the energy shifts. She's come home from the store with groceries, but it was what happened at the store that has her so worked up. While there, she saw the McDowells. They didn't see her, so she did exactly what we would all do. She followed them. Doing what any good daughter of a weekend cop should do, Rose spied, writing down everything they purchased in case it could be used as evidence. Dorothy has no tolerance for her goofy detective work. These people sell exotic gems, not Gino's pizza rolls, which have been around since 1967 but were sold to Pillsbury in 1985, who eventually rebranded them as the Totino's pizza rolls we all know and love. What a what a great product. One of my favorites still to this day. I mean, I, I put those in a toaster oven. Forget it. One of the best foods. After Rose's investigation, Al has had it. Taking off his headphones, he gives the three girls a stern reminder. He and Bobby are the detectives. Let them do the detective work. They aren't staying with the girls because they're all a gang and they're going to go hop into the mystery machine and get to work. They need to stay out of it. Perfect timing to cut the tension, Bobby is here to relieve Al and take over the eavesdropping. This allows Al to take some space, get some air outside. Rose might not be a detective, but she's not dumb. Okay, she's not totally dumb. She's worried that if Al is spotted by the neighbors, it might look suspicious. Al realizes the good point that she's making. Even if he just wants to pass as a male visitor to one of the girls, it would look better if who he was there to see accompanied him to the lanai, which is why he informally backhands Dorothy's shoulder with a, Come on, Dottie. Well, Dottie, I mean Dorothy, will not stand for such disrespect. If he needs a favor from her, he needs to be polite and ask. This, of course, escalates everything, as she did kind of snip her request at him. 
as they argue and he points out that she's no royal princess like Lady Di or Princess Diana, she asks him to join the bomb squad. As they argue their way across the kitchen, the chemistry Blanche was spritzing about is evident, even if it is a little toxic. Before she can even get out the door, a giddy-as-a-schoolgirl Dorothy turns back to the girls. Shaking in delight, she word vomits, Oh God, I am crazy nuts about this guy! Before running out of the back door to catch up with her would-be lover, leaving Blanche and Rose with giggles and smiles. It's the next day when we find Rose on the couch with a magazine, and there's another ringing of the doorbell. On the other side is Martha McDowell. Her appearance paralyzes Rose with fear, only allowing for squeaks to emit from her mouth in response to Martha's greeting and subsequent reminding of her being Rose's neighbor, and that she had been over for dinner, and that the night before she had followed her through the grocery store. Now, I don't mean to be a clothes detective, but here we are on a new day and Rose is still wearing her white pants and yellow sweatshirt. But who hasn't had a clean outfit that was only worn for a few hours find its way onto our bodies the next day? Or in the case of quarantine, where the clothes don't ever hit the floor, you just realize when you start to smell your own odors that you've been in the same shirt and variation of pajama pants for four days, right? The not-as-fancy-as-dinner-night Martha is looking like a sporty weekend mom just going out to get some new towels and maybe a pair of shoes at TJ Maxx in her jeans, pink polo, and checkered open shirt. With the arrival of Blanche and Dorothy from down the hall, we see two things. That they, too, are shocked to see Martha, and they, too, loved their outfits from the day before because they are all dressed in the same clothes. Styling whoopsie. With Blanche's stutter and ringing of her ring, it's clear she's uncomfortable. As all three just stare at Martha, she has to ask, what the hell is going on? Thinking quickly, Blanche points out that this is a fashionable household and they are horrified that her shoes don't match her bag. Still frozen in fear, Rose can only squeak when Martha invites the girls last minute to her house for dinner. Just then, the detectives come in from the kitchen. As Martha politely introduces herself to the mystery men, Sophia, in a darling vertical rainbow-striped house dress, comes to the rescue, introducing Alan Bobby as her son Alfonso and grandson Bobby, who are in town from New York for a fishing trip. Unfortunately, all they've caught thus far is a cold. Playing into Sophia's story, Bobby sneezes, forcing her to use her old mouth-cover whisper trick to tell him to butt out. She's a solo storyteller. Taking off, Martha asks them to get back to her about dinner. Grateful for the cover, Al plants a little kiss on Sophia's head. Hey, it wasn't any work for her. She's often confused as to who her grandson is. Bobby can't believe the luck that they would be invited to a dinner. Before he can share with the girls why he's excited, Al starts to shut him down. But Bobby persists. They need to bug the house, and the only way to do so is from the inside, which is where they will be if they accept the invitation. Al is not on board. He can't justify putting the girls in danger. Bobby's middle name must be danger because he doesn't care. He knows the McDowells are too smart to let info slip over the phone. The bug will be the only way to get a bust. Excited by the idea, Rose offers to be the plant before Sophia reminds her she is a plant. Dorothy understands that Rose wants to help, but she also knows that she cracks under pressure, like the time she tried to climb out of a coffeehouse bathroom skylight because she didn't have enough money for her drink. 
Rose understands the concern, but those behaviors have subsided since she switched to decaf. For Blanche, it's a matter of being conspicuous. Everyone will be looking at her as she'll be wearing a low-cut, dinner-party-appropriate, cleavage-bearing blouse. So it only makes sense for Dorothy to be the one to do it. She can handle the pressure and, according to Sophia, looks like Buddy Epson, the star of Beverly Hillbillies and the 1970s police drama Barnaby Jones. Special guest star, William Shatner. Tonight's episode, To Catch a Dead Man. With the dinner plan in place, a yellow nightgown-wearing Sophia and pink nightgown-wearing Dorothy are in bed. Since Sophia's room doesn't have a bathroom, it looks like the guys are shacked up in Dorothy's room. I would be terrified. Two detectives living in my room? Rummaging? What kind of old junk are you going to find? What kind of embarrassing paperwork? Ah! As upset as that thought has made me, Dorothy seems to be wrestling with something, too. No, literally, the way she's tossing and flopping in Sophia's bed looks like something out of WWE. When Sophia inquires as to what's bothering her, Dorothy gives a nothing. Well, staunch Catholic Sophia won't have her daughter lying in her room, that's breaking a commandment. And what commandment is that, Dorothy asks, thou shall not toss and turn? No, Sophia corrects, thou shall not lie. Ah, but Dorothy points out, that's not a commandment. Even though the Bible authors took the time to write about not hitting the sheets out of marriage or with your neighbor's wife, they couldn't put in a don't lie? Well, Dorothy's actually wrong here. There isn't a thou shall not lie, but there is the thou shall not bear false witness in the ninth commandment, which is about lying. Coco, you went to Catholic school. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. False witness, that's... One of them. Basically lying, right? I believe any type of lying, yes. It's not specifically like... Not like in witness, court. Witness, like to someone about something, just you in said, general. Yeah, anything. Uh, this is a huge hot dog, and it was small. <laughs> Boom, false witness. That hot dog's tiny. <laughs> a perfect and very common example. Thank you. <laughs> Forgetting she was inquiring about her daughter's mental health, Sophia twaddles on about her annoyance at the Ten Commandments. Taking the cue of how tired Sophia must be based on the blabbering, Dorothy rolls over to try to sleep. She can't talk to her mom when she's like that. Sophia doesn't think she's being unavailable. It is 4 a.m. for crying out loud. Well, maybe she should try our way of life by phasic sleeping. Right, Coco? Here's what you do. You go to bed at a reasonable hour, let's say 10 p.m., maybe 11. You wake up at 3 or 4. You hang out for two hours and go back to sleep. It's wonderful. It's the best. You watch a bad movie, smoke a little pot, hug. It's great. It's like we get more life. We get to have like a, a like a second day or something. Yeah. It right feels at the end. sneaky. Well, and I feel like anyone could do it. You would just have to map out your time. So maybe it does mean you go to bed a little earlier. Like if you have to get up for work at 8, then, you know, you go to bed at like 8 or 9, and then you get up and do that. It's the best feeling, and it's so wonderful. My favorite part of that, besides getting that time with you, is how relaxed and comfortable that time is. Yeah, it's like zero time. There's nothing 
I cannot go anywhere. No. I there's no one to talk to or have to respond to or any there's nothing's going to interrupt anything. No phone calls, no deliveries. Yeah, the world is just stopped. It's like you're yeah. st- you're sneaking away some time. It's it, you have uh, great sleep in those last few hours. Oh, it's always the best. Cuz you're you're like retired, like super yeah. tired again. Oh, it's the best. I never remember even falling asleep when we're hanging out. It's just kind of like the the sleep takes you. Yep. And also, you feel so much better cuz you're in control of it. Instead of fighting and going, oh, my God, it's one o'clock and now I'm wide awake and I'm stressed out and I'm on my phone and I can't, but I have to sleep. I have to sleep. It's like, no, 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 no. If you've gone to bed a little bit earlier, you don't have to sleep. You can just embrace that time and say, oh, I already slept for those couple hours. I'll get a couple more on the other side. Boom. What's keeping Dorothy up is her anxiety and nerves about the dinner party. She can't decide if she should bug the house or not. For 50 years, Sophia has assisted Dorothy in every decision from prom dates to husbands. But when it comes to going on a mission, it's out of her wheelhouse. It's not like she's retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who has gone the way of Charlton, becoming the president of the NRA. Besides his mission work to Vietnam, he worked to plan missions of bombing Libya and the invasion of Grenada while on the National Security Council. He would become best known for the Iran-Contra scandal, where, under Reagan, he sold American weapons to Iran, giving the money to an extreme rebel group, the Contra, in Nicaragua. Frustrated with her mother's lack of help, Dorothy rolls over to try and sleep. The only advice Sophia can give is that if Dorothy thinks her doing the mission will help her land a date with Al, she should do it. Because, you know, I guess your life isn't as important as long as you can get a date. That's correct. Okay. You're not truly alive until you're validated, you know, with another person. Yeah, and if even if you're not sure how they feel, you should definitely endanger yourself or do things you don't want to do to prove things to them. Get your eggs, put them in that basket. <laughs> with a high-pitched shock, Dorothy argues, this is to be a good person, to help her fellow citizens. And yes, she would risk her life for Al. She would give her right arm for Al. All of her emotions have Dorothy confused, so Sophia offers a story. Picture it. Sicily, August 1908. No, wait, that one's about jealousy, not about doing crazy things for love. Okay, um, let's try Havana, 1957. No, Sophia never went to Havana. Okay, so Brooklyn, 1958. No, huh, I guess she doesn't have a story for sacrifices in the name of love. It's a shocking moment for Sophia. She feels lost, broken, no good. She might as well have famed and beloved Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda waving her in because she's struck out. You're good, Tommy. I don't give a you feel good. There's four motherfucking hits up there. They all hit the opposite way. I don't give a Tommy, you got a left hander here, I can strike this out. Don't give a shit, Dougie. Well, I may be wrong, but that's my job. I'll make hurt I'll make the fucking decisions here. I'll make the fucking decisions here, okay? Since Sophia can't come up with a story, Dorothy will have to be happy with an observation. Al is a good guy. You're both crazy about each other. Do it to impress him if you want, but she knows Dorothy also wants to do it to be a good person. I know I would want to do it because I love a good story and a good tattle. Finally getting some helpful advice from her mother, Dorothy can get some sleep. With a kiss on the hand, Sophia gives her good nights, reminding her daughter that the next day may be her last. Sweet dreams. 
It's finally the night of the dinner party. Dorothy is in a white shirt and periwinkle jacket, both of which we've seen before, and a huge pink and floral skirt, the likes of which I don't think we ever see her in again. Rose is in a stunning red dress, and Blanche, true to her word, is wearing a very sexy giraffe print dress. Not anxious about the dinner, Rose is more concerned about the fact that they'll be missing a movie on TV, In Cold Blood, where a family is murdered. This prompts Dorothy to give us one of the first Rose Bops, when she takes the TV guide from her hand, landing it on Rose's hair, leaving it smashed and flat. Blanche is on Dorothy's side. We're nervous. We don't need to hear about a scary movie. I bet if Blanche knew Mr. John Forsyth was the star of the film based on the Truman Capote book In Cold Blood, she would want to watch it, even if it is about a family being brutally killed randomly. They who had no pity now ask for yours. They who had no mercy now ask for yours. They who had no tears now ask for yours. If you have tears to shed, weep not for them. Weep for their victims. Adjusting her hair, Rose reminds Blanche, we've got detectives watching us. What is there to be worried about? When Blanche confesses her nerves, Al decides to walk through the plan. Suddenly, Rose is Oliver North as she knows the time and locations for everything. With military time, she has it all down, starting at 1800 hours, or 6 p.m., get to the house, sit for dinner, wine is poured, and that starts a St. Olaf story, which should last, as Dorothy points out, 1900 hours. Getting in proposal position, Al places the transmitter in Dorothy's hand before closing his around it. All she has to do is pop it on the underside of the table, and that's it. With a sweet holding of hands and a gaze, the plan is in place. With no other questions, the ladies stand, but then a precious all-pink Sophia arrives from the kitchen, ready to go to dinner. Even though Dorothy tells her she isn't invited, Sophia doesn't care. She has life experience, and they're going to need it if things go sour. What kind of experience? Well, only two world wars four major operations, 15 vendettas, and both Dick York and Dick Sargent playing husband Darren on the 1960s sitcom Bewitched, a true hurdle to overcome. Rose is not on board. Those aren't reasons enough to put herself in danger. Fine then, Sophia offers. How about that she's hungry? Referring to Dragnet, Sophia gives a let's go, Dano, and heads out the door. Later in the kitchen, we see the guys listening in. The door is closing and the girls are headed home. The mission was a success. Al was nervous about their abilities, but Bobby assures them the bug is working. Breaking what has to be some sort of hippo-like rule, Bobby has Rose give the bug a listen, negating the use of all of their recordings for future charges or trials, I'm sure. As fun as it was for Rose, Blanche's heart hasn't stopped racing, and she's barely caught her breath. It's officially the most fun she's had standing up. Well, except for that one time when she was joining the Mile High Club with Ben, Billy, I hope it wasn't Bobby. Listening in, Rose overhears her neighbors discussing the noodle head in the red dress, which is code language for Rose. Coco, if you had the ability, be it superpowers or surveillance, would you want to hear what people said after you left, like a dinner party or anything? Absolutely not. <laughs> it would be soul crushing. Well, I just don't care. Mm. If someone's going to say something behind my back, I that's fine. Um, I'm going to find out about it. 
I don't need I don't need more things in my life to be mortified about. <laughs> Al expects that with the bug in place, they'll overhear enough of the heisting plans to be able to get warrants and be gone by the next day. Realizing they're running out of time, Sophia excuses herself to give Dorothy and Al some alone time. Shockingly, even Rose catches on to Sophia's plan and starts to leave. It's Blanche who is still so worked up and excited she doesn't catch the romance drift until Sophia reminds her that she is tired too. Telling the lovebirds they won't be able to hear a thing, the girls leave. Taking the clues from the ladies, Al steps in to kick Bobby off of eavesdropping duties. With Dorothy seated with him at the table, fidgeting with all the beepity-boopity lights of the machine, once again just waiting to compromise the entire investigation, Al starts to almost ask her out. After a few compliments, which she takes with appreciation, he gets stuck on the big question. It takes Sophia listening through the kitchen door using her less fancy surveillance equipment, a glass, yelling, he wants to ask you out, for the message to be clear. Finding Bobby in Dorothy's room, reading a magazine in bed, Blanche enters in a stunning housecoat robe thing. She's brought towels for Bobby, per his request. Before she leaves, he thanks her for all of their help. It was easy for Blanche. It was like having her son Matthew around, only he isn't armed. Showing her motherly concern, Blanche wants to know if Bobby's mother knows what he does for a living and that he carries a gun. He tells her, yeah, she knows, and yeah, she's not a fan. Blanche points out that's because your mother loves you. For her, she worries all the time about her son Matthew, and he's just a certified public accountant, not a cop. For Blanche and Bobby, they have a sweet bond, a bond I wish we could have seen more of. For now, we'll just have to pretend there were nights that Bobby, homesick for his family in Oregon, stopped by the house just to have a nice warm meal with his stand-in family. After agreeing to an open invitation for Bobby to come by for dinner, Blanche leaves, giving the lights-out order. Bobby obliges while remaining fully dressed, even with weird, plasticky-looking shoes, on the outside of the blankets on the bed. Listening in on the suspects, Al is in the kitchen when he gets a hit on the bug. Calling out for Bobby, he starts for the door, Bobby meeting him in the hallway. With guns and hands and holsters on, the guys leave, giving the order for the ladies to sit on the ground in front of the couch and not move. The ladies follow the demand, holding each other in fear. When Rose hears a strange noise, she's even more terrified. When she learns it was a frightened Sophia passing gas, well, I think she remains the same level of terrified. As the ladies wait for word on the exchange being over or the guys being okay, gunshots ring out. Becoming frantic, Blanche has to hold Dorothy back from running out to find out if Al is okay. She quickly learns he is when he comes running in the door. Grabbing the phone, he reminds them to stay put. That's when they learn, via his request for support, that Bobby has been shot. And that's when Coco almost had a heart attack. I shouted, no! You did, an audible, uncontrolled, no! And it was sincere, because... They drop bodies on this show. They do. And, and I guess it's his charm, too. And he was so young. He's such a young cop. Yeah. And that's what they were scared of anyway, so you didn't want it to come to fruition. And it, and it felt like one of those things they were setting up sitcom style to have that happen as like a, a you know, and it was, but mm -hmm. I'm glad they didn't go all the way. And, yeah. Well, spoilers, kill him. <laughs> yeah, I think that would have been too dark and too much. And yeah, I think the point is made really it, well. But yeah, I think it would have it would have changed their conversation more so. Mm -hmm. And Al would have been dealing with a loss. 
Yeah. That would have been uncool. Yeah. And Blanche. Be like, you know, yeah, yeah. They just had that great connection mm-hmm. and, and their their connection changed from a flirty sort of horny thing yeah. <laughs> into a really sweet mothering thing. She, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk to people, you see their value. That's where you find their value. Mm-hmm. Just looking at someone is nothing. When you talk to them, you find out that he's not a, just a hot piece of clune. <laughs> <laughs> he's a young man. Yeah. The word clune. That too. Hot piece of clune. <laughs> clune tang. <laughs> Back to the Biscayne Hospital we go, where we find Bobby is okay, suffering just a shoulder wound. As the girls stand around his bedside, he recounts the harrowing story of being shot. At first he was freaking out, but then he realized it was just his shoulder. So then he passed out, calmly. As Blanche dotes on her foe son's bravery, Sophia is shocked. Back in Sicily, ducking bullets was part of kindergarten. Rose had a much more peaceful kindergarten experience. To graduate, you only had to promise to not eat the paste. With the arrival of Al and a wheelchair, we learn the McDowells were arraigned, and it looks like they're going to be going away for a long while. Long enough that Rose is concerned about their lawn care. Dorothy's concerned Rose should have a CAT scan before they go home. Showing off her candy striper skills that we'll get to see more of in the future, Sophia takes the helm and starts driving Bobby out of the room while Blanche and Rose follow, begging to hear the story again. Alone once more, Al closes the door, giving he and Dorothy some privacy. Now he's really ready to ask her out. He's finally decided to share his feelings for her, and she's in the same boat. She really wants to go out with him. There's just one hang-up. She sees a possible future with him, and that scares her. When she thought he may have been shot during the raid, she realized their whole cops and robbers thing was more than just some beep and boop and machines. He could get hurt, and she doesn't want to live a life of worry or eventual loss. As much as they clearly have feelings for each other, Al handles the rejection well. He's heard it before, and instead of getting upset, defensive, or pathetic, he just agrees. He has a tough job, and he's chosen that over an easy dating life. With a kiss on the cheek, they part ways. Sophia, once again waiting at the door, is anxious to hear the outcome of the conversation. Making sure her daughter is okay and absolutely sure she's made the right choice, Sophia offers a consolation date, Dr. Tansy. Moving on from her love for Al, Sophia tells him to beat it so Dorothy and the doc can have some time together. Sometimes when you may have found someone you see a future with, it's important to see all aspects of that future. Sure, there may be chemistry, a good physical connection, or even love there. But if the person's lifestyle doesn't fit with yours, be it due to beliefs, goals, or job, it can derail any chance there may be at a long-haul connection. For Dorothy, she was smart, brave, and mature enough to recognize her needs and fears. Not only did she acknowledge those feelings within, she didn't allow herself to settle for a life of fear, worry, and stress just because she found a decent guy. As for their amateur detective work, well, that's better left to the professionals, at least when guns and gems are involved. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we cry over a decorative flower in Piece of Cake. Anyway, 
I've been waiting for somebody to put it to me like that for so long. He can't hear, so she can... <sighs> Will it make you sick? Maybe a little bit. 100%. Every time. But you can't say no. I eat so many, though. They're so good. Mm. Ooh, a fried pizza roll. Ooh. <gasps> a beer-battered pizza roll. <laughs> With that crunchy outside and then that gooey middle. Ooh, baby. Someone call the state fair. This allow out. Whoa. Before she can get out the door, a giddy is a school girl. Damn. School girl. School I giddy girl. a school girl. Giddy a school girl. Oh, baby boy. <laughs> you know, I was related to Shaggy yeah. and Scooby, but like they were never treated as like part of the gang, but they were the ones that always solved it. That's what I didn't like about it. They were always like, you guys are the dumb, goofy ones. And I was always like, well, I'm the dumb, goofy one. And it's like, can you show them some respect? And then, like, the jock gets the credit for it. Every time. I'm sick of this world. <laughs> <laughs> I know you love that part. Did you have anything you want to say? You're always welcome to pop in. You made me laugh. Sorry to bore you. I'm just sleepy. because I'm I kidding. Would... I was angry at my mom when I was sleeping! <laughs> Everyone will be looking at her as she'll be wearing a low-cut, dinner-party-appropriate, cleavage-bearing blouse. Bearing blouse. <laughs> Don't be lying about the size of your hot dogs. <laughs> I think I just want a hot dog. <laughs> I think so. I'm wanna, hungry. hungry for hot dogs. Go to Costco. <laughs> <laughs> that is a huge hot dog. <laughs> Two of those, you're full for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a commandment. <laughs> yada yada, hot dogs. <laughs> so, what's on your mind? I hate my mother and I want a hot dog. Early February is <laughs> pretty, pretty rough on me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... <laughs> but it's... But it's... <laughs> what? February's tough. It is. But it's hot dog season. <laughs> Everyone knows the best hot dogs are in February. I laughed a lot at that before I said it, but I feel like it was it was justified. Was that a specific lesson they taught you at Catholic school? Like when you're in kindergarten? Most, most Catholic school is? lessons are about hot, involve hot dogs. Ooh. Mannix, Gunsmoke, Ironside, day, day one of a time. Here he is discussing something Rose heard about, 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 about. <laughs> Sorry, I short-circuited. And yes, that poster, I I have stared at it longer than I care to admit because it's got this blue background and then these, you know, save me kind of written chaotically. And they're laying down and he's crawling atop her, but she's kind of angled so her shoulder looks like a third boob. And I think he's wearing jeans and a belt. He is. And no top. <laughs> Bitty bitty bum bum. Are you laughing about hot dogs? <laughs> Just that that was the example that sprung to mind was about. Are a you hot doing dog. some self search right now to say why was that? And it's hot dog season T-shirt would be great. That's true. Stop teasing me. <laughs> he got Oscar nominated. 
By royal decree, parents do not understand. I heard that. King Richard. Oh, the prince is now a king. <gasps> oh. Hee-hoo. <laughs> king hot dog. Oh, parents. They do not understand. <laughs> Bombing Libya and the invasion of Granada while on the National Security Council. <laughs> and that's just... <clears throat> What we know. He's the guy that got caught for it. Yeah. Like all the guys that haven't. Mm -hmm. And I do mean guys as in (laughs) dudes with hot dogs. (laughs) Wordplay. Time play. Clock play. Oh, nasty. (laughs) All she has to do is pop it in under the... All she has to do is pop it on the other... All I have to do is read this sentence and say the word underside, but I can't do it. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sisters.